Our Father in heaven, we are very grateful for the privilege to come together as a family to study your word. We thank you, Lord, for the way that you constantly draw us closer and still closer to your heart. We praise you even for our trials, for if they are rightly received, even they work together for our good. And so, Lord, even now, we bow before you, asking for the forgiveness of our sins and also for the presence of your spirit to manifest himself as our teacher. But not only our teacher, but the one who will guide us into the teachings and empower us to live them. And we're grateful that you have not only heard this prayer, but we trust because it's according to your will that you have answered it. And so therefore we say thank you in advance for these precious blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I want to invite, invite all of us to turn our Bibles to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Right there at the very beginning, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to look at a very foundational text of Scripture, God's plan. When he made man, there was a plan. There was a thought process that God had in his mind of what he wanted. And the Bible is very clear about it in Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to consider verse 26. And if you're there, just let me know by saying amen. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 1, looking at verse 26, it says, And God said, Let us make man in what? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. As man is made in the image and likeness of God, he, by God, is empowered to have dominion over everything on the earth. Alright? When man is not reflecting the image and likeness of God, he cannot have dominion over the earth. You understand that? And that's why today... Adam and Eve, back in the days, they could go to an animal and the animal was subject to them. Today, when we go in the presence of a grizzly bear, we are subject to that bear. You understand that? We're subject to that lion. We don't have the dominion anymore that Adam and Eve once had. But as God restores his image and likeness in us, we will once again have dominion. That is God's precious promise. When I look at the word likeness, it's a very important word. The word likeness in the Hebrew... It means resemblance. So the first thing is, is that, you know, Adam and Eve had certain uh, physi physiological things about them that referenced God. There was a resemblance when God made mankind in the beginning of time. But it's not only that. I also want you to see that that word likeness also deals with the mannerisms of God. Okay? The mannerisms of God. Behaviors. Characteristics. When God made man, man was designed to not only reflect God as it relates to behaviors, but when God made man, he was to reflect God's thoughts. I want you to understand that. He was supposed to have the very mind of God. When God made man, man was to reflect the very mind, character, and personality of God himself. That was God's design in the beginning of time. 
And there's a nice little way that if you study the Bible carefully, you can actually see a reflection of this, how God's thoughts and man's thoughts were absolutely united one with another. And I'm going to give you an example of this. Go to the book of Genesis now, chapter two. You can just pretty much turn a page over or maybe you don't even have to do that, depending on how big your Bible is. You go to Genesis chapter two and I want you to see how literally we can see this truth that when God made man in his likeness, that it was not just resemblance by way of physiology, but it was also a reflection of the very mind of God, the thoughts of God. Well, how do we know this? The Bible is very clear in Genesis chapter two. God told Adam to do something. Let's watch the counsel of God very clearly. And then we're going to consider some other texts so we can kind of get an understanding. In Genesis chapter two, the Bible says, starting at verse 19, man is made in God's image and likeness. There is no sin on the earth. Man is in his sinless state and he has a reflection, not only of the physio physiological structure of God, but the very mind and thoughts of God. So one day God does something. And I like how the Bible puts it in verse 19. What does it say? It says, and out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. God says, I'm going to bring these animals to Adam. I want to see what Adam's going to do. You see, Adam was made without any flaws. He was made flawless, but he still had to develop character, still had to develop. So God allows Adam to go through this experience. And he says, I'm going to make all these animals. I'm going to make all these birds. And what I want to do, Adam, is I'm going to watch you carefully and I'm going to see what you call them. It was a beautiful little way of a, you know, test. No, no bad could come out of it. But God, again, was seeing. I'm going to watch Adam and see what he calls them. So here it is that it says, and whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found and help meet for him. So you can imagine that Adam is watching all these things God created. So Adam sees this animal. It has four legs. It has a very full size body, but it has an extremely long neck. And then kind of this little head on top of it. And it has all of these brown and white patches on it. So Adam's looking at that animal and eventually Adam says, you know what? I think I'm going to call that animal. What? What do you think Adam called that animal? Giraffe. Giraffe. Very good. Adam goes ahead and he looks at this bird. He sees this bird. This bird, kind of small little guy. Bird is small. Got a pretty much wide, round, almost a little squarish looking head. The bird has big eyes. And the amazing thing about this bird is that the bird could be looking at you this way and the bird can just zoop and turn his head all the way the other right way and look and see exactly what's behind him. Adam says, hmm, I think I'm going to call that bird an owl. You see that? God, Adam was just looking at all of these animals and he's just looking at them and he's naming them one by one, whether it be the fowls of the air, whether it be the beasts of the field. He's naming all these creatures. Now, I believe that when God was putting this before Adam, God was seeing something else outside of merely the names that he was calling them. I want you now to turn your Bibles with me to the book of Psalms. And I want you to go to Psalms, the 40th division, and look at verses 25 and 26 with me. Psalms, we're going to the 40th division, 
And I want you to see what it says as we consider verses 25 and 26. God wanted to see. Let's see what Adam calls these animals. Let's see what he calls these birds. So here it is in Psalms, the 40th division. Let me see here. No, that can't be right. Not Psalms 40. So let's go ahead. I'm so sorry. Isaiah 40. Thank you. Isaiah, the 40th chapter. In Isaiah, the 40th chapter, 25 and 26. Isaiah, the 40th chapter. And now we're going to look at verses 25 and 26. Isaiah was going through. Now, 25 and 26 is our focus. But, you know, if you were to go through the full of Isaiah 40, Isaiah is challenging the people of God because, you know, there's a lot of things that were created. There was man. There was stars. There were animals. And you see all of that listed from Isaiah 40. And you can pretty much start right about at verse 21 and you take it down. You can see there that God is referring to all sorts of things. And as God refers to all of them, I want you to notice something that God brings out in a powerful principle in verses 25 and 26. In Isaiah 40, 25, if you're there, say amen. amen. All right. It says in verse 25, to whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things. Again, the animals, the people, the constellations. God says, lift up your eyes. Look at who's created all these things. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by what? He calleth them all by names. By the greatness of his might, for that he is strong in power and not one faileth. God calls them all by what? He calls them all by name. You see, God already knew that that long necked animal should be called a giraffe. But he wanted to see, Adam, what are you going to call it? God already knew that that bird who could turn his head all the way around. He already knew that that bird should be called an owl. But he wanted to know, Adam, what are you going to call it? And God goes point by point through the various things of creation. And Adam was right there because his mind was so united with God that everything that Adam called it, God says, that's exactly what I would have called it, Adam. Everything that Adam named that could fly, God said, that's exactly what I would have called it. The mind of man and the mind of God were perfectly united one with another. It does not matter if it's the smallest matters of life or the greatest matters of life. When the mind of man and the mind of God are together, even our minds can become very powerful. Our thoughts can become very powerful. You see, look at the echo of this very point in Psalms 139. Let's watch it again. Psalms, the 139th division. Notice again what the Bible says. In Psalms, the 139th division, let us go ahead and let us consider verses 1 to 6. In Psalms 139, we're looking at verses 1 to 6. God brings out all these wonderful points to help us understand that his desire in the beginning of time was that man's mind and his mind were to be completely united, that we would be one. The Bible says in Psalms 139, starting at verse 1, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou knowest my downsitting and mine uprising. Thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Thou understandest my what? My thoughts afar off. Thou compassest my path and my lying down and art acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word in my tongue. 
But lo, O Lord, thou knowest it altogether. Thou hast beset me behind and before and laid thine hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain unto it. God knew Adam was what Adam was going to call it before Adam called it. Again, God's mind and Adam's mind were together. Their thoughts were united. And this was God's plan in the beginning of time. God wanted us to be a reflection of his thoughts. His thoughts were to be our thoughts. And so whenever you think about the plan of redemption, you and I have to understand that it's not enough that God wants to change our behaviors. He also wants to change our what? He wants to change our thoughts and he wants our thoughts to become what? His thoughts. And God says, the sooner man's thoughts becomes my thoughts, they have just found happiness. The sooner that man's thoughts and God's thoughts come together. My brothers and sisters, you literally found the key for happiness. Oh, that we might think like God. If we could think like him, then something else will happen. Go to Proverbs 23. Let me show you what else will happen. You see, if we can think like him, and something else sweet happens. It's kind of a by default. You see, a lot of people are pursuing the character qualities of God. A lot of us are trying to do the various behaviors of God while we still don't have the thoughts of God. We're working backwards. You can't have success like that. And you definitely won't be happy. Have you ever obeyed God on the external while deep down in our thought processes we are not united with him? That is when Ellen White uses a term where she says our religion can become dry formality and heavy drudgery. Why does it become like that? Because as much as I'm obeying, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. That's all right for a beginning stage, but that's not supposed to be the continuum and definitely not the end. In the beginning stage of life, in anything, you're going to do stuff you don't want to do. When you work out, there comes a point, if you've never worked out before, when you first curl that dumbbell or when you do that first push-up or when you do that first exercise where you got to go 30 minutes straight, get your heart rate up at least 75% of your target heart rate. At first, you're not going to like it. But the goal is that eventually it becomes enjoyable. You actually get to a place that you say, man, I can't wait to exercise again. I'm enjoying going ahead and doing those dumbbells, doing those push-ups, running and going. And you know what? I'm not going for 30. I'm doing 45 this time. Now I can do a straight hour. Why? Because your body has become acclimated to it. You now are one with those exercises. So I understand that in the beginning of the walk with God, yes, we're going to get to that place. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do this. That's called the beginning of the relationship. But my brothers and sisters, God wants to get us to a place that eventually his desires are actually our desires. That's part of that plan of redemption. Well, here it is that when you go to Proverbs 23, what does the Bible say? If our thoughts could be his thoughts, what's the beautiful, natural default? Proverbs 23, right there in verse 7. It says right there in verse 7. It says, for as a man, what? Thinketh in his mind, what happens? So is he. That's the default. You see, if we could just realize, could it be that some of us are working backwards? 
I'm a father of four children, so I have to also consider this as a parent. Often parents want their children to behave right. But very rarely do parents try to help their children adopt God's thoughts. That's a different level of parenting. How do I help train my children that they can have the thoughts of God? Because God promised, if you can show your children how to have my thoughts, the default is they'll be like me. Because as a man thinks in his mind, so is he. You understand that? Some of us put forth painstaking effort. Child, behave right. Child, behave right. Child, behave right. It's imperative that we behave right. But how often are we assessing our children? Do they have the mind of God? Do they think as God thinks? Do they have thoughts that are like the pattern man? These are the kind of things that we should be assessing as mothers and fathers of our children because we want our children to be successful and we want them to be happy. And God says, listen, I understand that, yes, at a certain stage in a child's growth, they can only understand the externals. But a time should come where it should be super seriously goal oriented in the mind of that parent that we are seeking to help our children understand God's mind. To understand the way he thinks. And you know what that means? That means that we cannot just tell people what to do. Now we got to show them why. I've always learned that in business, but it's amazing how it's taught in Christianity. The why is more important than the how. I learned that in business. But it is also true in Christianity. God says it is not so much what you're doing. God says, I want to know why are you doing it? God pays attention to that thing we studied in Sabbath school this morning. Motive. Why are you doing what you're doing? Because you can do everything right externally and be completely corrupt on the inside at the same time. That's deep. That's why David says, search me, O God, and know my mind. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. And if there is, Lord, oh, please lead me in the way everlasting. Help me to change my mind. You know, when David fell into sin, What's the first thing that what's the first reformatory aspect of David's prayer in Psalms 51? You ever thought about that? Creating me a clean. You see that? David knew it. He said, listen, you know how I got in this trouble? He said, my heart was messed up. He said, my thoughts were all messed up. And until I get my thoughts right, I cannot truly get control over my behaviors. Listen, family, I'm telling you right now, we can all act nice for a period of time. We can all lay low for a period of time. We can all endure trial and endure drama for a period of time. But a time will come. I've learned something a long time ago. Satan is also patient. He will sit back and he will let you and I think that we got it together. We got it figured out. We got victory. And all he's doing is he's sitting back and that brother's just practicing. Boom, boom. It's as if he's just practicing. I'm getting ready to throw the punch at him. They don't even see it coming. And he will let us walk in a false religion and in a false relationship and walking around with false power. And he will let us learn something. I had a sales manager. His name was Chad. And Chad, I'll never forget it. Chad was teaching us something. This is years and years ago when I used to do professional sales. And Chad sat all of us down as sales reps. And he said, listen, how many of you guys ever heard practice makes perfect? And we were like, yup, we heard that before. Yup, practice makes perfect. We we're all in agreement. And he said, no, that's not totally true. And we were like, what do you mean, Chad? And he said, perfect practice makes perfect. 
He said, sometimes you can practice the wrong things so well that you become perf- perfect in doing wrong. And I was like, that was deep. I had to take a bathroom break. I was like, can I go to the bathroom? <laughs> Got to think on that a little bit. That was deep. Sometimes you and I can practice something for years, for decades, and it's the wrong thing. And we become masters at doing the wrong thing. And sometimes we're no better off. We got to understand what the right thing is and then practice that right thing. You understand that? God's desire for you and God's desire for me is that his thoughts and our thoughts would become one. Because God knows the more that my people have my thoughts, then he says, my character will come out because by beholding, you become changed. Now, that's a great principle that we hear about. Y'all know where that's found? You know what that actually is in the Bible? You know this? Go ahead, Brother Ike, where is it? Excellent. Second Corinthians chapter three. You remember the verse? Excellent. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. It's worthy to look at. Let's turn there. In 2 Corinthians, it's a promise in the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Notice what the Bible says. That principle comes from Scripture. By beholding, you become changed. By beholding, I become changed. That's why you need to be careful what you're beholding. So notice what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Right there in verse 18, here's the principle, not the exact verbiage, but here's the principle. Second Corinthians chapter three, verse 18. But we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the what? The glory, the glory of the Lord. What does it say next? What's the next two words? Are changed. So we're beholding the glory of the Lord and we are, we are changed. How? Look at how it says into the same image. From glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit of God is the source of how you and I get the thoughts of God. We behold the character of God. We behold his responses. We behold his initiations. We behold when he holds himself. We behold when he speaks. When we constantly behold him. The spirit of the Lord will begin to do something that is very mysterious. He will create a love and a desire and a passion within our hearts that we want to be like him. This is why we're told in that wonderful, blessed book, Great Controversy, page 519. It says Satan well knows That those whom he can get to neglect prayer and the searching of the scriptures will be overcome by his attacks. That is a clear, definite statement. He will create any and every good reason, quote unquote, stay away from the Bible. Don't pick it up. And if you do pick it up, don't take it seriously. If you do pick it up, rush through it and read it. Hurry up. Go ahead. You got more important things to do. Satan will do anything but get us to sit down or even more, more important and more beautiful to get on your knees. Open up your Bible, study it and say, I'm not going anywhere until I get my blessing from this reading. With all my getting, I'm not going anywhere until I understand what these verses are saying to me. 
Satan hates it when we do that. When we take that time to study, the devil gets very mad, my brothers and sisters. When we go on our knees, and it's no longer those formal prayers. Oh, Lord, thank you for this. Thank you for that. Da, 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 da. Um, 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 um. I mean, almost like super rehearsed prayers. Satan says, oh, I'm not afraid of that. <laughs> he says, y'all keep doing that. Do that for decades. But when we get on our knees and we say, Lord, and we begin to talk to God like he's real. Pray out loud. Not yelling, but praying aloud. Evening, morning, and at noon will I pray and cry how? Aloud, the Bible says. Psalms 55, verse 17. Pray aloud. Verbal. Open your mouth. Don't just do meditational mental prayers. Open your mouth. That's what Jesus did. He's your example. When you begin to talk to God, do you know when you open your mouth and talk to God, he becomes more real to you? Did you know that? I dare any of you to try it. This is a good dare. I dare any of you to try it. Find a solitary place like Jesus. Open your mouth. That's why in Luke 11, it says that he was somewhere praying. And then it says, and when he ceased, when he stopped praying, then the disciples came and said, uh, we have a question to ask you. Teach us how to pray. Jesus says, when you pray, say. He was teaching them, speak it. God becomes more real to you when you open your mouth. God stays very imaginary when you pray to him in your mind. He stays, he stays more in that puppet world when you just pray in your mind. When you open your mouth, God starts becoming a lot more real to you. When you start praying and talking to God, and then when you stop talking, you open up the word and let God talk back to you. That's called communion. You start doing that, you're making Satan tremble. You're making him tremble. Because now he knows you're in a position that God can show you wondrous things out of his word. And Satan is very afraid of that. And so it is that God says, I want my people to have my thoughts. Because ever since sin came into this world, my thought processes have been broken from humanity. And now the minds of men are going in all sorts of different directions than God. Go to Genesis 6. Let's notice the proof. I mean, we just read Genesis 1 and 2. But by the time you get to Genesis 6, what does the Bible say? Genesis Notice what it says now. Looking at chapter 6. This is all here. It's all in the text. It's like the Lord just keeps showing us things. It's beautiful. Genesis chapter 6. And let's see what the scripture says. And when you get there, just let me know by saying amen. amen. The Bible says in Genesis 1 and it came, Genesis 6 verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. And daughters were born unto them. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives, all which they chose. You need to underline that part. They chose them. Then it says in verse three, and the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man for that he is also flesh. Yet his day shall be one hundred and twenty years. Now watch this. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men, which were of old. Men of renown. And God saw that the wickedness of man was what? Great. Great in the earth. And that how many of their thoughts? Every, every imagination, every thought these people had of the thought, every imagination of the thoughts of his mind was only evil continually. That's how much the devil debunked God's plan. 
The beginning of time, man's thoughts and God's thoughts were one. By the time you get to this antediluvian phase, by which now Noah and his team is on there, all of a sudden, it seems like the devil has almost completely erased that wonderful privilege and gift. That the thoughts of man were completely out of harmony with God. To the point that God says, we need to start this all over again. And he brought a judgment on the earth. That's how serious this thing gets. Now, when we begin to look at this, we understand that God wants your thoughts to be his thoughts. This is why the forehead is so important with the seal of God. Notice that the devil, he doesn't care. He says, look, I don't care if you get it in your forehead or in your hand. Whether you get it in your thoughts or whether you get it just by your mere cooperation, Satan says, I don't care. But God says, the only way you can please me is when you believe. The only way you can please me is when your thoughts are my thoughts. God says, that's the only people who get the seal of the living God. That's why it's forehead only with him. But with the devil, forehead, hand, I don't care. Satan says, I don't care. Just don't do what God says. Whether it's because you don't believe it or whether it's because you believe it, but you're afraid. And therefore, you'll just cooperate with Satan's plan. Satan says, I don't care. Either way, you're going to get the mark of the beast anyhow. And so God is very serious about this thing. What we're studying, I can guarantee you, is preparation for the final crisis. What we're studying is not only serious, it's dead serious. I have realized that I really need the thoughts of God. And I need the thoughts of God at every moment. Because at every moment, there's someone that is tirelessly trying to derail my thoughts. To get me to think in certain ways that have nothing to do with heaven nor heaven's creator. And you better believe you're under the same exact attack. And this is why guard well the avenues of your soul. Oh, my brothers and sisters, that is the counsel of the day. You got to guard what you let in your head. You got to guard it at all costs. Having a wonderful, wonderful talk with my son as we were driving here. And we're talking about how it's so imperative that you guard what you let in your mind. You got to be careful. Especially when the Lord starts endowing gifts on you and abilities and people pay attention to you. You better guard your thoughts. And I realize I got to guard mine every day. My brothers and sisters, you need to understand that even some of God's warriors at times have shown through the testimony of Scripture that their thoughts were not God's thoughts. You see, I want you to think about this. Go to Isaiah 55. Watch this. We're really going to study today. We're going to study. Isaiah 55. I want you to watch this. This came out of my devotion, by the way. All, all of this... This, this just birthed out of my devotion, talking to God one on one. And the Lord said, all right, Dwayne, I need you to pay attention. And he gave me my lashing and I am healing from it. And God's about to give you yours. And the purpose of him doing it is he always wounds for one purpose to heal. He always wounds for one purpose to heal. You always remember a butcher and a surgeon can both have a knife in their hands. One does it to cut and separate. The other one does it to cut to heal. God is not a butcher. God doesn't want to slash you up. You know, a lot of people teach that about God. They make God look like he's this slasher. Like he's just going around just, just cutting folks. When I used to live in New York, used to be on the Long Island Railroad. And there was a time on the Long Island Railroad. I used to take the Long Island Railroad into Manhattan every day for work. And I remember there was a time, thank the Lord, there was a guy who went on to the Long Island Railroad. You know what he did? He took out a knife and he just started whoosh, just slashing people, just started cutting people all through.
the Long Island Railroad. Some of you who lived in New York, you probably remember that. Or if you were watching the news. Way back in the days, it was like 2000, 1999, something like that. And it's amazing because some people, they take knives to slash and to cut. And we begin to put that wicked picture on God. God does use a knife. God does use a sword. Guaranteed. But my brothers and sisters, God never uses his knife or sword to just slash and to cut people and make them bleed to death. When God cuts, he cuts like a surgeon. God says, I'm the master surgeon. God says, I performed the first surgery. God said, Adam, take a nap, son. I need to do some surgery. And God did that first beautiful surgery. And I think he did pretty well. Don't you think so? Adam came out of it just fine. Came out better off than when he started. And so it is that God's the master surgeon. He cuts to heal my brothers and sisters. So don't be afraid when I use that word cut. God cut me. But he did it for the purpose of healing me. And if God cuts you, you make sure you understand. He's not doing it to hurt you. He's doing it to heal you. The Bible says in Isaiah 55. In Isaiah the 55th chapter, it's right there in verses 8 and 9. God makes it very clear. That what he designed is no longer reality. For the Bible says in verse 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That was a statement of reality, but that was not a statement of desire. You get that difference? It was a statement of reality, but it was not a statement of desire. God's desire is that his thoughts and our thoughts will be one. And I'm going to prove that emphatically from scripture. God's desire is that our thoughts will be one. But God made it clear your thoughts are not my thoughts. Because the previous verse is one of the most beautiful statements in all the world. It's one of the most beautiful promises. Ellen White says this promise right here, we should take it naked as it is. It says in verse 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God is like, listen, this is my promise to you. If you forsake your ways, if you forsake those evil thoughts, do you see how God did that? Do you see how he did not just say forsake the ways? He said forsake the thoughts because it's the thoughts that prepare the way. Clear, clear. And so God says, listen, if you forsake your ways and those thoughts, God says, I will not only pardon you, I will abundantly pardon you. He says, why? He says, because my thoughts are not like yours. My ways are not like your ways. Oh, man, look at what God is showing. This is grace what he's revealing to us in these verses. You understand that? Now, there are mighty warriors who did great things for God. But sometimes they testified that their thoughts were not connected to God's thoughts. I think it's time to go through some of these examples. I chose mighty people on purpose. Go to the book of Numbers chapter 20. I want you to watch this. When I think of a mighty man of God, I don't know about you, but my man Moses comes to my mind. Moses was an incredibly mighty man of God. The Bible says something about this in Numbers. We're looking at the 20th chapter. And we're going to pick up at verse 7 in this story. The children of Israel are murmuring and complaining again. Not the first time. They're murmuring and complaining again. So here goes God having to give counsel to Moses. Now I want you to watch this. 
In verse seven, it says, and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, because keep in mind, the people are complaining. Where's our food at? I mean, these people love food. Food was definitely their God. Their belly were their gods. Now, here it is that they're complaining, crying. Oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. All of this stuff just because they couldn't eat. Pretty pathetic. But nevertheless, Moses and Aaron are going before the Lord. They're crying. Lord, what, what do we do with this? So here goes God's instruction. Verse seven. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, take the rod and gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron, thy brother, and speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them water out of the rock. So shalt thou give the congregation and their beasts drink. And Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation together before the rock, and he said unto them, Hear now, ye rebels. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and with his rod, what did he do? He smote the rock. How many times? Twice. Twice. That brother was angry. He allowed passion to control him for a moment. It says he smote the rock twice and the water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their beasts also. But verse 12, and the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron, because ye believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. A moment of passion changed the whole course of providence. You have to understand 1 Corinthians 10 verses 1 to 4. You can just write that down if you'd like. In 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4, the rock represented Christ. That rock that was providing the drink for them. That rock was a representation of Jesus. The first time they came to the rock, what did Moses do? He had to strike it. Okay? He had to smite the rock. And then water would come out. But this time, the second time, what did God tell Moses to do to the rock? Speak to it. Do you know, had Moses obeyed, it would have been a beautiful picture of the gospel. How? The rock, in order to provide refreshing to the people, to provide blessings to the people, the rock the first time had to be smitten. So it is with Jesus. In order for Jesus to pour out blessings upon the people, Jesus had to be smitten. You understand that? So the first time the rock was smitten, that was a perfect typology. Perfect. Rock smitten, blessings come. Jesus smitten, blessings come. But watch this. The second time, what did God say to do now? He said, do what? Speak to the rock. You know why that was important? Because Jesus does not go on a cross a second time. Once Jesus went on Calvary and then ascended into the sanctuary above, all we have to do now is pray and speak to him and ask for blessings. But what Moses did is he ruined the plan of salvation in the type. Because instead of speaking to the rock, God says, Moses, this would have been a perfect example. The people would have appreciated the coming Messiah more. But because you struck it, not once, but twice, you marred the whole plan of salvation. Failure number two. He said, how much do we have to keep doing this for you? What do you think that made the Israelites think? 
So maybe it wasn't God doing all of this for us beforehand. I guess it was you and Aaron that was doing this for us all along. And if you erred on this point, maybe you erred on several other points. And maybe this whole thing was a joke. And maybe we really need to go back to Egypt. You know what God said? God says, Moses, I have to give swift judgment. God says, I have to. Because if I don't give swift judgment to what you've done, then the people might very well begin to doubt the whole plan of salvation in the process. I must hold you accountable. This is why God holds leaders very seriously accountable before him. Because when we err, it's not enough to just err in your home. But when we err in the public before the people that are following us, that's a lot of casualties. So you know what Moses did? Moses decided to apologize and start some begging. I want you to read it in Deuteronomy chapter 3. Go there with me. In Deuteronomy now, we're looking at chapter 3. Watch this story. This thing is very, very deep. Deuteronomy 3. We're going to start at verse 23. So we're in Deuteronomy 3 now. I want you to watch verse 23. And look at what happens here. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 3, we're looking at verse 23, and we're going to take it to verse 27. Look at what the Bible says. Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 23. Now the Bible says, Deuteronomy 3, verse 23, and I, and I besought the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, thou hast begun to show thy servant thy greatness and thy mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or in earth that can do according to thy works and according to thy might. I pray thee, let me go over and see the good land that is beyond Jordan, that goodly mountain and Lebanon. Verse 26, but the Lord was wroth with me for your sakes and would not what? Hear me. And the Lord said unto me, let it suffice thee. Speak no more unto me of this matter. Get thee up into the top of Pisgah and lift up thine eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and behold it with thine eyes, for thou shalt not go over in this Jordan. God says, no. Moses' thoughts and God's thoughts were not united. God says, no. I meant what I said. Moses, this judgment must be visited. Moses was begging. He was asking God, Lord, please, can I? Please, Lord, I, I know I messed up, but, you know, and he probably could have had a thousand things to say. Lord, I, I messed up only once. Where else on my record do you see me messing up, Lord? Do you know that ever since Moses was called by God, we have no record of his sin. We have no record of his falling. In other words, this was one time. And here goes God saying, Moses, I said what I said. I stand where I stand. And... Don't ask me again. Serious parent, isn't he? Yes. yes. <laughs> Very serious parent. Now, the time comes. You can read about this when you read the last chapters of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 31 to 34. I'd encourage you to study it. In Deuteronomy 31 to 34, my, as I'm going through this thing, I'm reading it. And here it is that Moses is now giving final counsels to Israel. All right, Israel. Joshua is going to take over. Um, I want you to be faithful. One by one, he goes through the tribes. You are blessed. I want you to be a blessing. And this, this. And he's counseling all of them. God's going to bless you. God's going to keep you. Da, da, da. And he's encouraging them. And God already showed Moses, Moses, they're still going to rebel. 
even after you die. It's almost like Moses' ministry, by way of appearance, was a failure. I mean, think about it. You went to deliver a whole bunch of people. Only two of the adults make it in of the original group, those over 20 years old. So, you know, if, if you allowed your mind, I didn't say his mission was a failure. I said it can appear like that. So here it is. God's giving him final counsel. And God says to Moses again, God says, Moses, you remember I told you to speak to the rock. You didn't speak to the rock. You struck it. And therefore, Moses, because you struck it, he says, I have to visit judgment upon you. Go up in the mountain, Moses. You read this in Deuteronomy 31 to 34. You'll read it. He says, go up into the mountain, Moses, and there you shall see the Canaan land. But he says, but you will not go into it. You will see it and then you will die. God says it to him again. Now, my human mind, as I'm reading this, I'm just like, Lord, isn't that just a little harsh? And God says, no, because my people don't understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. God says, the problem is we don't understand it. We play with it. We think it's a game. We let our children sin. We are guilty as parents because God holds us. God will not hold us guiltless. God says, you don't think I'm going to hold you accountable for what your children are doing? So not only the children sinning, we're sinning. We're sinners before God. Then on top of that, you got a church filled with people who love the world, want to bring the world in the church. All these other things. God is like, I see all of it. And these people actually think they're going to go to heaven. God said heaven would be hell to them. If I brought them into an eternity of Bible study, prayer, praise and thanksgiving, they'd hate it. They'd be like Israel. They'd be like, where's the world? We want to go back. We remember when we used to eat. We remember when we used to live. We would say the same things to God. There's very few people in this world that, watch my words, there are very few people in this world that love holiness. Very few. And all God is trying to do is convince us of how beautiful holiness is. That it's worthy of our love. It's worthy of our attention. It's worthy of it. But sometimes this world is still attractive to us. And that's why God keeps letting stuff happen. I didn't say ordain. Please watch my words carefully. I didn't say let. I didn't say ordain. I said let. God allows things to happen. That it was not his ordinance for it to happen. So what does God do? He allows us to hear another shooting. Another shooting. Another high school. And you got parents who got children in school. Public schools. What do you think those parents are doing? They're probably praying a lot more than they did the first time they let their children in public school. You understand that? People are praying more. They're like, Lord, what do we do, Father? And, and we're seeing how wicked this world is. And if that's not enough, God says, I'll let you see more. God is trying to get us to that precious place that we can set our affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Because we're dead and our lives should be hid in Christ and God. Colossians chapter three, verses one through four. God says, that's what I'm trying to get my people to realize. This world is not worthy to stay here. The problem is too many of us are trying to stay here. And so God says, okay, let me show you what you're trying to stay in. And then he just keeps letting it happen. And when it doesn't affect us from a distance, he'll let it come closer and let it come closer until it comes to our own home. And then when we see the power of Satan and sin in our own home, that's when we start saying, no, 
And even then, sometimes God is merciful. God says, I allowed this thing to come in your home so I can show you your need to change your mind. Because if I can help you change your mind, then you will rightfully change your behaviors. And it might become so contagious that your children may partake of the fruit off of your tree. He's too wise to err, family. And so it is that Moses drops dead. Sounds sad, doesn't it? First of all, let me tell you that that's not sad. Let me tell you why. Can I, show you, can I do a quick test for us right now to show you how even our thoughts are not necessarily connected with God's thoughts? Can I do, some, can I do a test right now? A friend of mine was pregnant. Uh, had a baby. Baby was born in this world. When that baby's born, we say, Amen. Isn't that right? We say, Praise the Lord. Do we not rejoice when our friend finally bears that child and the birth goes well and the baby's born and all is well? Don't we say, Thank God? Don't we give testimonies in church at like, like uh, I praise the Lord that I'm alive? We love being alive, don't we? Go to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In Ecclesiastes, the seventh chapter, notice what the Bible says. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. In Ecclesiastes, the seventh chapter, watch what the Bible says. Just starting right there at verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And notice what the Bible says. God's thoughts are really different from our thoughts. Ecclesiastes 7 and verse 1, what does it say? It says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of what? The day of death than the day of what? One's birth. I want you to think about how many times you rejoiced on someone's birth. How many times did you rejoice when someone died? We probably would put the word never next to it. Hardly ever. The Bible says a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. These thoughts are different from most people's thoughts. When Moses died, we would say, oh, how sad, how terrible. But Jesus had a plan. You see, Jesus had a plan. When you get a chance, you study Jude in verse 9. There's something I learned about Jesus. It says it in John 11 and verse 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. So whenever Jesus goes to a dead person, he only has one thing to do with them. What is that? Resurrect them, to bring them up. Jesus is the resurrection. So in Jude verse 9, he's at the body of Moses, that dead body. Satan tries to interject, hey, don't you remember that he hit that rock twice? Jesus had choice words for him. Let's look at those choice words. Jude, verse 9. Go to the back of the Bible, Revelation, and the book right before it is the book of Jude. The Bible says that when Jesus came to the body of Moses, look at what the Bible says. Jude, verse 9. The Bible says in the book of Jude, in verse 9, right there, 
The Bible says in Jude verse nine, it says, yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of who? About the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke thee. That's all God had to say to him. When he came to resurrect Moses and Satan came to try to remind God of all of his failures, the Bible says he was rebuked. Get away from me. And he touched Moses and said, Moses, get up. And he brought Moses right back up again. You know, the only thing that changed in God's plan as a result of smiting the rock twice? Translation versus resurrection. In other words, God already had it in his plan. Moses, once you get into Canaan land, I'm going to just translate you. But then once Moses messed up, God says, all right, I got to visit that judgment, but I'm still going to fulfill my plan. It's just that instead of me taking you to eternity through translation, I will now take you to eternity through resurrection. God didn't forget his son. God saw the error of his son's ways. When you read that wonderful story, Patriarchs and Prophets, and you read that chapter, The Death of Moses, it says right there that his plan was to translate him in Canaan. But because of his sin, because of his choice, God says, I'm going to visit it, but nothing catches God off guard. God says, I'll still fulfill my plan. He's going home with me. It just won't be through translation. Instead, it'll be through resurrection. And so God raises up Moses. Why do you think Moses could be there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration along with another guy, Elijah? Moses was counted amongst those who got resurrected. God raised them back up. God makes a statement clear. And I say this to all of the faithful workers in this room. Don't ever look at that story and think, oh, God is such a harsh, mean person, such and such. No, God says something very clear. God is not unrighteous. Go to Hebrews 6. Look at what the Bible says in Hebrews 6. Yes, Moses's thoughts was not connected with God's thoughts. Moses wanted to live. God says, no, you must die. But had his thoughts been connected with God's thoughts, he would have seen, oh, I'm going to go ahead and be with him anyhow. Whether through resurrection or through translation. Not much of a difference. I still get to be with him. And Moses didn't even die suffering. You're going to Hebrews 6. Do you know that the Bible says he was 120 years old? It says his eyes were not even dim. His eyes wasn't even dim. My daughter Kayla and I, we went to the Philippines a couple of weeks ago. We're going to show you the video. We went into the house of a woman who was 120 years old. Seventh-day Adventist lady. Lives up in the mountains, breathes in pure, fresh air. Eats only food that comes from the soil. Totally plant-based. She told Kayla and I, I'm going to get ready to take a walk and I'm going to go out and catch the bus so I can go to church. Amen. <laughs> wow. We sat and I said, when the brother told me, there's a lady who's 120. I said, 120? I said, I've never seen her. I, got to, I can't leave this island without seeing her. And so we went to her humble little house. Clean. I sat right next to her, put my arm around her. And I was like, Smelled fantastic. <laughs> she says, I still bathe myself. The girl could still bathe herself. Her son was there, 84 years old. Her oldest son, 93. I said, what time do you go to sleep? She says, 7 o'clock every night. I said, Lord, I don't know if I could do that one. Because, you know, I'm trying to pick out all of her fountain of, youth, fountain of youth points. I'm like, how do you do this? But when we got there, her eyes were dim. 
When we talked with her, her eyes were dim, brothers and sisters. She says, I've, I've basically lost my sight. How many medications are you on? None. No medications. Hmm. But nevertheless, she says, my eyes are kind of dim. My eyes are, you know, I can't see too well. But the Bible says Moses was 120. His eyes weren't even dim. It says his countenance had no disease. It's like God put Moses up in that mountain and God said to Moses, listen, I'm going to let you see Canaan land, but I'm going to let you see more than that. And God gave him a nice heavenly vision. Oh, Moses saw the whole plan of redemption. Moses saw beyond the ages, that prophet of God. And when Moses saw all of that, it's as it were that God just said, Moses, you look tired. You should take a nap. And all the Bible says is he just went to sleep. And next thing you know, he goes to sleep, accepting the judgment of God. And his brother goes to sleep. And almost as he gets to his REM stage, God says, hey, get up. I'm going to take you home with me. I can, I can only imagine what was going through his mind. Because he just knew, I'm going to die. I accept the judgment. Lord, take care of my family, Israel. That's all that's on his mind. I accept it, Lord. I know my sins are forgiven, etc. And here goes God surprising him and just wakes him up. God says, if only your thoughts could be my thoughts. God says, I could show you things that you would never imagine. At that moment, Moses' thoughts and God's thoughts were not the same. You see, Hebrews 6, look at what God says. I didn't forget the verse. Hebrews 6. Look at what it says right there. Verse 10. In Hebrews 6 and verse 10, I told you, I said, God is not unrighteous. Look at what it says. For God is not unrighteous to do what? To forget your work and labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. God says, I don't forget any of my labors. Even when God's laborers are left in pits and dungeons and left to be slaughtered away and the people of God have turned their backs on them and even God may have to give a judgment like he gave to even Moses. God says, don't you think for a minute that I'm an unrighteous God. He says, I do not forget the labors of love that you have done for me. And God will always distribute fair and righteous judgment. But it's not just Moses, a mighty man who did not have his thoughts fully connected with God at that moment. How about another mighty man? Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 19. Turn there with me now. Notice what the Bible says in 1 Kings. We're looking at chapter 19. In 1 Kings, the 19th chapter, we read another story of another mighty man who also testifies of his thoughts. Now, what's interesting is Elijah's thoughts are completely different from Moses' thoughts. God told Moses, you must die for what you have done. But Moses said, Lord, please don't let that happen. Let me live. And let me go on. Let's look at this one. First Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 4. Elijah just had a tremendous victory against the prophets of Baal. Well, here it is that as Jezebel gets wind of it, here's the story. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all and with how with all how he had slain all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me, and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when that mighty man saw it, when that mighty man saw that he arose and went for his life, 
and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that what would happen? That he might die and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father's. Elijah goes to God and under pressure says, Lord, please let me die. Just did a wonderful thing for the Lord. But in his discouragement, he asks for death. I wonder what God gave him. Go to 2 Kings chapter 2. Let's find out what. Let's, let's find out how God answered Elijah's request. You see, Elijah's thoughts were not united with God's thoughts. When yours and my thoughts are not united with God's thoughts, we can even pray and ask for things amiss. We can pray and ask for things that we should not be praying and asking for. Elijah wants to die. But instead, God says, no, I'm going to do something else. Second Kings chapter two. And the Bible says right there in verse 11, the Bible says, and it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind where? into heaven. Elijah says, I want to die. God says, no, I'm going to translate you. He responds and says, no, I'm going to do the total opposite. I'm going to translate you. Moses, I want to live. God says, no, you must die. Elijah, I want to die. God says, no, you must live. Mighty men testifying their minds were not connected with God at certain points in their walk. Isn't that something? The reason I'm showing you this is I want to show you that if this thought process infected these mighty men, what do you think is the ch chances that these thought processes can infect you and I? This is why you got to be on guard at every moment. God said to Elijah, nope, I'm not going to let you die. I'm going to let you live. Elijah's thoughts were not united with God's thoughts. God had a whole plan for Elijah. Elijah could not see that plan because he allowed his discouragement to take his mind into another direction. I hope you understand that the great controversy is between God and between Christ and Satan over the mind, over the thoughts of man. Satan is constantly attacking our thoughts. There are some of us who may say, Lord, let me live where God says, no, the best plan is for you to die. And we need to be able to accept that process if that's God's process. And then if and when that person dies, we could say it was better. In his death. Than when another child is born because it was God's plan fulfilled. But there are some of us that we get so discouraged. Oh, Lord, I can't take much more of this. Lord, just let me die. God says, no, I have a plan. I have chosen you to be counted amongst the 144,000. I'm going to put that very discouraged weak one. And I'm going to encourage them to hang in there because I got a plan for their life. And that plan is you're going to be part of my translated group. We need to let God's thoughts be God's thoughts. And we need to say, Lord, help my thoughts to be in harmony with your thoughts. And if that's not enough, let's get to the New Testament. Again, amongst the very one who is known as the one who loved Jesus. Luke chapter nine. In Luke chapter nine, John, the one who listened most attentively to the very words of Jesus, 
the one who paid absolute attention to Christ and his words. The Bible says in the book of Luke, chapter 9, I want you to watch verses 49 and 50. There are times that if we're not careful, we can reflect the devil's thoughts while we're walking with Jesus, just like John. The Bible says in Luke, the ninth chapter, looking at verses 49 and 50, if you're there, say amen. It says, and John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. And Jesus said unto him, what? Forbid him not. For he that is not against us is for us. His thoughts were not united with Christ's thoughts. And as a result of that, he was ready to stop the work of the gospel. Do you see the danger of what can happen when our thoughts are not united with his? He literally said all, all Jesus had to do was agree with him. If Jesus would have said, hey, that's a great idea. Let's stop him. That would have frustrated the gospel going forward. Do you understand that? Do you know that there's an application we can make of these very verses even today? From as, from as far back as 1881, in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it was in 1863 that the church decided to become an organized body, to become an organized religion, okay? And when that happened, there were some who looked at church organization as a good thing. Church organization allowed for continuity. Church organization allowed for holding people accountable. Church organization allowed for order. There were many blessings that comes from church organization. When somebody just runs the church on their own, when they're own, and when they're the leader, and no one can hold them accountable, those are churches that can easily become corrupt. So church organization is a blessing. But you know how it is. Sometimes blessings abused become curses. Jesus and the apostles are walking and doing a great work. But there's other people who's also anointed by Jesus and they're doing a great work. But John, because he had jealousy and the spirit of Pharisaism in his heart, he wanted to stop that work purely because they are not doing it with us. Let's stop them. Thank God Jesus said, no, 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 no. If they're not against us. You see, that's a qualifier. If they're not against us and then they're doing this work, leave them alone because they're for us. In 1881, all the way to 1889, there was a little book, compilation of books that made up something called volume five of the testimonies to the church. And there's a segment in it where the statements there are very much applicable even to our day. And I want you to see what it says. Some of our leading men are inclined to indulge the spirit manifested by the apostle John when he said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. Here's the response. Organization and discipline are essential. Another way of saying essential, very necessary, but it says, but there is now very great danger of a departure from the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. What we need is less dependence upon mere form and ceremony and far more of the power of true godliness. 
Now watch this. If their life and character are exemplary, please let me pause right there. When individuals are working, we are not to consult, are you under our conference? Are you working with us? The first thing God wants us to pay attention to is look at their life, look at their character, is what they're doing exemplary? Is it worthy of duplication? Is it worthy to be reproduced in the hearts of others? That should be our question. Not simply, are you under this conference or are you under that conference? There's work that's being done that needs to be done and it's going to be done and it's going to be done by people that are not necessarily under a conference. Not all self-supporting ministries are to be under an ASI or an Outpost Center International. They don't have to be under these things. And any leader or any leading men who begin to treat people like you have to be under this or else you are not recognized or recognizable. They are overstepping and they are playing the very role that John was playing himself. The question is, what is their character like? What is their life like? What is their work like? You see, if somebody takes the weapons of God's word, turns it against the church, begins to look for every evil that happens in the church so they can put it out on YouTube and on Facebook and on every other network. Oh, that's an easy one. That is not exemplary. That is not the character of God. Such ministries should not be endorsed by any of the people of God, let alone by the conference. So that's not an issue. But the key is, is that if someone says, look, I'm not under any particular conference. I'm not under the big organizations like an ASI or an OCI. I'm not under any of those organizations, but we do our work in this territory. We do it quietly. We do it humbly. The character and the life is in harmony with God. They are seeking to build up and strengthen the weaknesses in the church rather than to tear down the church. Those ministries should be supported, not just with our words, but with our money. They should be supported in every single way that we can support them, even with our participation. And so it says, if their life and character are exemplary, let all work who will in any capacity. So in these days, the work must be done. There are many departments of labor. Let everyone act a part as best he can. Let not those who preach the word lay their hands upon the humblest worker and say, you must labor in this channel or not work at all. Hands off, brethren. Let everyone work in his own sphere with his own armor on, doing whatever he can do in his humble way. Strengthen his hands in the work. This is no time for Pharisaism to control. Let God work through whom he will. The message must go. Amen. Volume five of the Testimonies to the Church, page 461, paragraph two. And so God is saying, that spirit of John could exist in the hearts of his people today if we're not careful. We must learn how to work together. The work of God on earth will never be finished until those who comprise our church membership unite their efforts with those of ministers and church officers. That didn't mean that everybody has to be under the same umbrella. We just got to be about the same focus and the same cause. The promulgation of the first, second, and third angel's message, the finishing of God's work, that should be our focus. So that very spirit, if we're not careful, can come in. And there's a warning 
to both those independent as well as those who are leaders in the conference and otherwise. There's a warning to both groups. Do not try to control everything being done. Also, do not function in such independence that you begin to let the devil lead your mind and now you're attacking the very thing that God himself raised up. There's always manifold extremes, all representing a disconnection of our thoughts with God's thoughts. Do you see that? Are you still in Luke 9? Look at verses 51 on. It says in Luke 9, 51 through 56, it says, And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up steadfastly. Uh, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. What village did they go into? The village of who? Samaritans. Now watch this. A village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. So the Samaritans rejected. Now watch this. It says, and when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command what? Fire to come down from heaven and kill them. Even as Elias did. But he turned and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are of. For the son of man has not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Jesus said, you don't have my thoughts when you said that. Do you see that? Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you are. I don't know who's. No, he did know who spirit, whose thoughts those were. Jesus said, those are the thoughts of the devil. Those are not my thoughts. Do you see how God is constantly showing us examples in scripture of how even those most closely connected to him can allow their thoughts to be disconnected from him. And if those thoughts were followed through on various plans of God would have been ruined. If God would have brought Moses into Canaan anyhow, do you understand the damage that would have happened to the gospel? So God says, Moses, you have to die. But God had a plan. He said, I already know I'm going to raise you back up. Moses should have trusted God that he never had to go to him and ask him to change his mind. God says, no, you need the change of mind. The title of our message, a need for a change of mind. Elijah, God says, Elijah, you are going to be the picture of what I'm going to do with my last day people to actually translate them. You're telling me you want me to let you die. But then, Elijah, you're going to ruin the plan of typology that I'm setting up with you as my model. God says, I'm not going to let you die. I'm going to translate you. John says, Lord, why don't we go ahead? Let's stop these people from working. Jesus says, John, if I stop them from working, then do you understand that in the last days there would be overruling, overbearing, pharisaical leaders in my church that would try to control every single work that would be done and the work would never get finished? So Jesus says, John, I can't do that. I am not going to forbid them. Jesus says, John, if they're not against us, that's the key. Then they are for us. Leave them alone. Then they said, Lord, oh, if we can just pour down fire from heaven, burn these enemies because they rejected you. Jesus says, then what should I do with everybody else in the world who rejects me? What am I going to do with Dwayne? Dwayne rejected me for 20 years of his life. Then, even more pathetic, even after he accepted me, he still was living in rejection. He was just blind to it. What if I would have burnt Dwayne up? He would never be standing here giving this message that might make somebody free. So Jesus literally said, I thank God that I ain't listening to y'all. Y'all don't have my thoughts. 
Jesus is showing the danger of what happens when our thoughts are disconnected from his thoughts. Do you understand our scripture reading a little bit better now? What was our scripture reading? Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Do, do you understand that verse a little bit better now? Do you see the deep, 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 deep relevance of us letting that verse be lived out in our lives? Lord, I need your thoughts. I need to think how you think. Because the more that I could think, Lord, how you think, great things can happen. Look at this precious promise in one of the best documentary books ever written on the life of Jesus, Desire of Ages. It says, all true obedience comes from the heart. Watch this. It was heart work with Christ. And if we consent, look at this promise. If we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims so blend our hearts and minds into conformity to his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. That means that what I told you in the beginning of the message is true. Yes, in the beginning, our thoughts are not united with God. We're going through training. But God says, but you keep obeying me. You keep trusting me. You keep following me. You keep neither turning to the right or to the left. You keep your eyes fixed unto the hills from whence comes your help, knowing your help comes from me, the Lord. Jesus says, if you keep doing this, he said, the time will come that your thoughts and my thoughts will be so clearly identified one with another that when obeying me, you're following your own natural or shall I say supernatural impulses. The Spirit of God will change your mind. And this is what God offers to each and every one of us today. Can you imagine that? That's sweet. <laughs> I mean, everything is sweet. Yeah, we're going we're to pray right now. We're going to pray right here. My brothers and sisters, Jesus wants to make it clear that I want to change your mind. I don't just want to change your behaviors. I want to change your thoughts. I want to change the way you think. You see, the promise of the Bible is that the last group to go through the final crisis of Earth's history, you know what it says about them? It says in Revelation 14, it says, they follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. Every thought of the Lamb is their thought. And therefore, every behavior of the people are in harmony with that Lamb. God says, that's who I'm getting ready. Nobody can make it through this final scene in earth's history if we don't have the thoughts of God. And God says, behold me. And then when you behold me, obey me. And when you obey, trusting in me, God says, I'm going to do a miracle. I'm going to change your mind. Keep beholding. Keep obeying. Keep beholding. Keep obeying. Behold more. Obey more. God says, the time shall come. When your thoughts will be so intertwined with mine. That the next time I tell you to do something, you'll be like Adam. You see, I don't know if you caught that. You see how God's will became the natural course for us through this quote? That's how it was in the beginning. Adam, what do you want to call it? I'll call it giraffe. That's exactly what I would have called it, Adam. God's going to say the same thing to you. He's going to say, hey, Reggie, what are you going to do about that? Reggie says, Lord, I think I should go ahead and do this. I think this is the right thing. And God's going to say, Reggie, that's exactly what I would have done. 
your minds will be so united with Him that when obeying Him, we're just carrying out our own very impulses because we're so united with Jesus. And I'm sure that many of us, maybe all of us, need some improvement on our thought processes. And my brothers and sisters, if you do, I know I do. So I'm already standing. But if you see your need to have more of the thoughts of Jesus, then I want to invite you to stand with me. And God is going to bless you well beyond your expectations. Oh, that his thoughts might be our thoughts. When his thoughts are our thoughts, we're going to be okay with living. When his thoughts are our thoughts, we'll be okay with dying. When his thoughts are our thoughts, we will go ahead and work with people, even if they don't seem like the greatest folks to work with. I mean, God changes all of it. When his thoughts become our thoughts. May God help us to be faithful in our parenthood, in our instructing of our children, in our encouragement one to another, and even as a church family, may we be found faithful at last. Let us pray. Our loving Father, we are so thankful for the privilege to have our thoughts united with yours. We have seen the dangers of what could take place by even exercising one foul thought. Lord, I pray, help us to be quick to obey when you speak. Help us to be slow when thoughts rise up in our minds and we want to act on impulse. And Father, I know that what I'm even saying is very difficult for many of us. But we are grateful for the precious promise that which is impossible with man is possible with God. Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, help us that we might have a changed mind. And as a result of a changed mind, we will have a changed character and we'll have the very character of thy precious son. So let it be done in our hearts, we pray. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.